It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. And welcome to the new midweek episode of the Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me today are our transfer market insiders and pundits extraordinaire, Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. As part of our new three episode per week format, every Wednesday we'll be looking to answer the burning questions of you, our loyal listeners. This week... We bring you the latest as PSG's Adrian Rabio and EAX's Frankie de Jong edge towards big money moves to Barcelona. PSG eye Jose Mourinho as their next boss, but is he the man to get the best from Neymar and the new FC Hollywood? And the Glazers have worked to minimise Sir Alex Ferguson's influence at Manchester United and reassess how that's worked out for the Old Trafford club. Okay, well, we've had a lot of you getting in touch regarding uh, Frankie de Jong. He's a player that we've talked about uh, often on the podcast, a bright young star from Ajax. And it looks like he's definitely got a destination now. Duncan, where's he off to? Well, his um, agent and the player himself have confirmed that they've decided to go to Barcelona, um, who have an agreement with Ajax on the transfer fee. So, um, as we were discussing the other week when uh, the news came out that uh, Paris Saint-Germain had um, agreed a fee with Ajax of 75 million euros and they had uh, terms with the player, um, we suggested at the time that that didn't mean the deal, deal was definitely done. It merely meant that Ajax had accepted a price and the player um, was happy with the, um, the salary and offer and that was essentially an invitation for the competing clubs to come in and try and better those terms. That, I'm told, is exactly what um, Barcelona have done. They have upped um, the offer to Ajax um, to a level where they will get up to €90 million as a transfer fee for the player, which is um, just €10 short of the figure Ajax were floating a few weeks ago as their valuation, not just of De Jong, but of Matthias de Ligt, the other uh, young talent in the squad. Um, Ajax also get to keep the player until the summer, um, which suits them. Other interesting elements is that Manchester City did not come back in um, and try and compete at at that pricing. Um, We've talked about how Pep Guardiola identified De Jong and did a lot of personal work with the player. Um, to try and convince him to come to City to be uh, the extra addition to his midfield, um, his, his ability on the ball, his passing range, um, ideally suited in Guardiola's thinking to to his team and the development of his team. But City have backed away. And I don't think, um, I think that it's not a coincidence that, um, that there are FFP investigations going on with City at present. And therefore, they've had to be careful um, reconsider their, their, their spending level. Um, another element is that this doesn't rule out um, Adrian Rabio 
going to Barcelona. I had a chat with um, a contact there this week to ask them whether it was De Jong or Rabio, and was told no. Um, they have the scope to do both deals. Um, what they have is a verbal agreement with Rabio, um, the Paris Saint Germain midfielder, um, to join on a free transfer in the summer. Um, and an agreement on financial terms, which I believe will be um, 10 million euros net, the same salary they offered to De Jong. Um, and they think they can do both of those deals. Um, whether Rabio will be happy to come in alongside De Jong, we'll have to see. Um, he's currently uh, in a major dispute with Paris Saint-Germain in the sense that he has for a long time refused to sign a new contract there. Um, is insistent he won't sign a new contract and in the last week uh, Paris Saint-Germain the club uh, ordered that Rabiot be excluded from first team training at the club um, as a punishment for uh, not signing a new deal there um, so two I think very significant developments um, I think we have you know we now see Barcelona securing a talent that every top club in Europe had been looking at and thinking about and wanting to sign as a as a future, a current and future element of their team. And they have used their both their financial muscle and I think their lure of their status as a club, um, the players they can go alongside and, and join, and the league that they're in, the competitive element of the league. Um, and as we talked about in the Transfer Window podcast throughout this, the, the, the sounding from De Jong's camp had always been that his preference was to play in Spain, which is very common in these circumstances. You usually find the top players in the world, give them a choice, which division do they want to play in? Um, above all others, it's the Spanish league. And you know, Barcelona have used that coupled with their financial muscle to get this deal done. There is a wider significance and resonance here for the Premier League. Um, much vaunted as the best, the richest league in the world, etc. And yet, um, five years ago, it was inconceivable that at least four of England's top clubs would not have been actively involved in the bidding for a player of De Jong's current stature, but also potential as a young player. Now, Manchester City have spent more than any other club in transfers uh, in the past 10 years. Duncan's correct about financial fair play uh, fears with regard to fines and possible bans from UEFA should that investigation prove that they have, they have um, been, there's been wrongdoing. Um, so that's one of those things. But at the same time, um, if Manchester City aren't willing to, to equal or better the terms for what what's widely regarded as the best young midfield in the world, then yeah, I think the status of English football's Premier League is declining in terms of um, their ability to attract the best players. Look at Barcelona in the last 18 months alone. Um, they've recruited this man Dembele, uh, Philippe Coutinho, and now Franco de Jong as well. All for fees in the, around or in excess of 100 million euros. Uh, I think we all expect um, when uh, the results of uh, the top European clubs' um, turnovers are released later this week that Real Madrid and Barcelona will top uh, those uh, that table <clears throat> showing yet again that despite the broadcast deal um, which obviously keeps the Premier League clubs amongst the richest in European football and world football uh, that 
the, the, the sheer enormity of the reach of the two big Spanish clubs is enough to be able to secure the best players. And of course, we should also um, take note that Barcelona are bracing themselves for a massive spend in the summer by their big rivals, Real, who have been relatively quiet in the transfer markets of the last two windows. Um, and that's because, of course, they hope to have a, a new permanent manager who they trust in place. And so they will be splashing out between 200 and 300 million euros as well. But they're keeping their powder dry in this window for the moment, apart from Brian Diaz from Manchester City. So uh, that, that all being the case, um, I think, you know, English football, Premier League clubs, certainly Chelsea, Manchester United, um, Manchester City uh, and Arsenal, not so much. Clubs who traditionally... Um, the agent of any player would have been basically knocking on the door saying, he's available, um, what do you want to bid? Are all actually closing the door and saying, sorry, uh, we just don't have that kind of money to spend on one player um, and we're going to have to look to spend it differently. Um, Manchester City is a very interesting example in, in, in the last three windows in the sense that they were outbid for Fred by Manchester United. They decided not to pursue Alexis Sanchez when Manchester United offered him a bigger salary, and now decided not to pursue Frenkie de Jong, who Guardiola was absolutely desperate to sign. So if you're a Manchester City fan, you're thinking, yeah, we've got a great team right now, but we are second in the Premier League, um, and we don't appear to be wanting to invest in the same scales we have before. So uh, I think that will be a, a, a bit of a concern for Manchester City fans, who obviously are hoping that their club is going to establish a new period of dominance in English football. They may also be thinking, Ian, that they dodged two bullets with those two players you mentioned. Uh, yeah, absolutely. No, no, no. And listen, <laughs> every transfer has a risk attached to it, Johnny. And you know, any manager, any CEO or chairman will tell you that. Even the best players, you can't absolutely guarantee uh, they're not going to you know, not perform at the level you expect them to, especially for the money you pay both in contract and in fee for them. As I said, it is, a, it is always a risk. But um, one thing I would add, and this is a personal experience, um, uh, our listeners will have heard various references over the last couple of years to a, um, an all-star match that I took part in in Chechnya, of all places, some years ago, where Maradona was our star player. And um, my business here was taking Steve McManaman and Robbie Fowler to play in that team. Um, and I can assure you that the money was, well, good, was nowhere near going to change their lives. And both said to me, the reason they wanted to go was so they could say, I played with Maradona, even if it was a, a chat, an all-star match in Chechnya. Now, Frankie de Jong, what are they going to say to him? Do you want to say you played with Leo Messi? Hmm, I think he probably does. Mm. There's a pool for Dutch players, isn't there, as well, going to Barcelona with the rich history of Dutch uh, quality there, starting with Johan Cruyff all the way up to Lee van Gaal's team when he had Mark Overmars and such like. I think so, yeah. And I, I... But I think basically there's a pool of going to live in Barcelona. It's a very attractive city. It's a a high-quality lifestyle. Um, And on top of that, you're playing in one of the most prominent leagues in the world for one of the most glamorous teams in the world. Um, And and it's happened time and time again. And it's, you know, you just talk to the footballers, particularly um, Brazilian footballers, um, have a, a, a huge uh, fascination with um, Barcelona and Real Madrid, and that will always be their preference to go there. But just look down the history of the biggest transfers in, in football and which clubs are doing them until Paris Saint-Germain weighed in with you know 
unheard of resources and and you know forcibly extracted Neymar from Barcelona. It was always Barcelona for years and years and Madrid who were doing these deals um, because they had the financial power to do it and the the attraction of climate, the attraction of the, of the league they're going to play in, the attraction that you know you, there's a honeypot effect, the attraction of the players they're going to join and play with. Uh, all combines there. Just on, on Manchester City dodging bullets, I mean, should add Jorginho into that list because you, you've got, you know, that was the, the player that uh, Guardiola identified as an alternative to Fred once um, Manchester United moved ahead in that race. And um, you wonder how Jorginho would, would have fitted into the Manchester uh, City scheme. Probably easier for him and that he wouldn't be... Um, so exposed as he is in Sarri's system, where everything goes through him and the, the manager identifies him as being the most important tactical element. And when that's not working, the criticism has been drawn to him and and also the additional criticism that comes from the N'Golo Conte factor. So you'd imagine it would have been easier for him at Manchester City. But yeah, I think you could argue that was a bullet dodged. Um, but I think you also have to be careful with all of these um, big signings and new signings when you're making judgments uh, six or 12 months in, uh, especially when they're moving to a new league. Um, the, the history of most players who come to the Premier League, um, particularly top players, is one of needing an adaptation period. And I think I think that's especially relevant in the midfield. So um, I think a hold, hold on a final decision on Jorginho, hold on a final decision on Fred. Alexis Sanchez, I don't think we need to hold on that one because he was long adapted to the league um, and uh, it's essentially been a, a huge waste of money on Manchester United's part, a big problem for them to solve. What an interesting one for um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's um, positivity um, and different managerial style, whether he can um, draw uh, the pleasure in the game back to Alexis Sanchez and, and I would note here that Ian um, several months ago I think was the first person to detail uh, the frustrations Sanchez was having in Manchester um, how he was unhappy with the climate, how he was unhappy with the area he was living in with his role in the team, the way his players were um, playing alongside him and his relation and his difficult relationships with other other players in the team and that's um, that's not gone away uh, and it will be a big problem for Solskjaer to deal with or for Manchester United to say um, we made a mistake here let's try and shift them out in the the next transfer window um, and, and cut our losses on on the big uh, wages and signing on fees we've paid them and, and try and move as much of that money as we can elsewhere. And just quickly, and last on the subject, Johnny, we have um, I've had a text uh, message from a friend uh, in Amsterdam who uh, said to me, um, the reason that De Jong's chosen Barcelona is because he wants to say he's played, playing with Kevin Prince Bote, not Leo Messi. Well, guys, we discussed Jose Mourinho and his appearance on BN Sports on Monday's podcast. And while it appears um, that he is indeed taking his break, enjoying himself, we know that history tells us that he doesn't do that for very long. And I'm sure he is casting his net far and wide looking for a new job for next season. Duncan, do you have any information on what's happening with Josie's search? 
Yeah, and it's Qatar-related. Um, while he was out in Doha doing his work uh, for the local broadcasters, um, he had a meeting with the president of Paris Saint-Germain, Nasser Al-Khalifi. Um, I'm told an informal meeting, um, but I think it, this, is a, this is something important and to pay attention to because Mourinho is, as he talked about um, on those TV appearances, he's preparing himself for his next job. As you, you said, he's monitoring other leagues, assessing clubs, um, trying to work out of, of the clubs that have an interest in him, um, which one would be most suitable to go to. Um, he even talked uh, in those TV appearances about uh, when he starts discussing, uh, when clubs come to him asking him to be their manager. The discussion won't be first about how much budget they have and which players are prepared to spend the money on. It's the structure of the club and the level of support they can give him and the objectives of the club and an analysis of, of what he's able to achieve uh, given the structure around him. And as we said um, earlier in the week, um, he very much emphasised this idea of his problems at Manchester United being down to not having a coherent hierarchy within the club, the lack of a sports director or the lack of someone within the club to uh, lay down the law with the players um, at times when it was required so that he did not have to do all the, as he said, the education of the players and did not have to constantly be in a, in a situation of potential conflict and friction with the players. Um, Paris Saint-Germain are a club that have tried to hire Mourinho for years. They've made him at least three um, formal offers to take over, all of which he rejected. He was very close to joining Paris Saint-Germain in 2016. Um, according to a friend, he had one foot through the door. Um, the the, the hold-up on the contract was uh, the difficulty that Paris Saint-Germain had in, pay, in meeting his, um, his net uh, salary terms because of the high tax rates in France. So, and while they were um, trying to negotiate a way around that, Manchester United came in, made their interests formal, and he decided to go there instead. I think alongside Real Madrid, um, alongside Internazionale, um, they are a, a, a major interest to Mourinho now. Um, you can see why uh, it's the opportunity, assuming they do not win the Champions League this year, and, and this is the, obviously the key factor in any, um, any chance that he has of taking over the club uh, for the next season. Assuming they don't win the Champions League, then that aim that Qatar has of buying, winning, uh, a first European football championship remains and stands. And his argument would be, I'm the guy who can get you over the line. I have the experience of winning the Champions League. I have the experience of turning top squads um, from pretenders into the real thing. Um, and at the moment, Thomas Tuchel looks extremely secure. Uh, PSG are miles ahead in the French League. Um, they are looking like winning domestic trophies, a whole set of domestic trophies again. Um, but 
and the, the big but always with Paris Saint-Germain is what happens in the Champions League. If Tuchel was to uh, endure another, um, for the club, another embarrassing early exit, was it to be, ironically, to Manchester United in the next round, then the pressure comes straight back on him. And remember that Tuchel was not an appointee of the president who Mourinho met in Doha, and he was not an appointee of the sports director, Antonio Antero Enrique, who's also a, a long-term associate of Mourinho's, um, the two having worked together at Porto. He was appointed by the Emir of Qatar. Um, so his his status at the club, his position at the club, is dependent on retaining the Emir's support. Um, there's no sense that he's going to lose it, but if you um, talk to people who know the Emir, they say that he is unpredictable and emotional and they will not rule out um, a change of direction in a, in a very rapid period of time should he become dissatisfied with something uh, specific that happens at the club. What's very clear as well, Duncan, is that Qatar have not invested the amount of money that they have in Paris Saint-Germain to see them run away with the French League every year. It's almost embarrassing how many points ahead they are already in January and has been. And um, it's not beyond like the uh, terms of managership of Laurent Blanc, of Carlo Ancelotti and then Unai Emery. All of them were sacked. Why? Because they didn't go far enough or close enough or winning the Champions League. Simple as that. That Qatar want the profile and the prestige of making Paris Saint-Germain champions of Europe. And they want a manager who can do that because they've already invested hundreds of millions of pounds in players who they believe should be able to do it. And so it's therefore up to the, the conductor of the orchestra to make sure the symphony is sounding uh, good and uh, good enough uh, to, um, to claim the biggest prize. Simple as that. And also, of course, you have the other side of that coin where you've got in a manager, Jose Mourinho, who has a personal ambition of winning um, three Champions League trophies with three different clubs uh, from, well, from three different countries, but also being the first manager to do that. And so in making history uh, himself, Obviously, three other coaches in the history of the game have won three Champions Leagues, but never with three different clubs. Now, that would, if you like, set Mourinho's legacy absolutely at the very top of the world game. And uh, we know that his ego is not very small. So, you know, I'm sure as much as it is, is for his professional satisfaction, it is for his personal satisfaction as well. So um, I think, I do believe that if you put those things together... Um, and you've got a manager with a bit of a point to prove, Mourinho these days, given that, you know, his sort of earlier than expected departure from his last two jobs at Chelsea and Manchester United, then Paris man might just be the right fit, but also Mourinho might be the right man to harness the outrageously individual talents of players like Neymar and Mbappe um, and turn them into a team who is capable of challenging when you get to that you know, very, very high level of Champions League quarter, semi-finals and final. Um, <clears throat> he's, he's done it with Inter, and you know he did it with Porto, two teams who were considered underdogs uh, in both those finals, uh, and he got them over the line. So given the ambition of PSG and their owners, I think it's a great fit, and I would not be surprised in the slightest to see Mourinho managing PSG next season. Duncan, is that not the key point that Ian's just mentioned there regarding Neymar? Uh, Jose Mourinho is probably the last manager that I would expect to get the the best out of Neymar. Am I being unfair? Based on what we've discussed on this podcast about his antics at PSG last season in particular? Well, uh, Mourinho and Neymar, um, Mourinho spent 
a lot of time trying to convince Neymar to come to Manchester United um, ahead of the summer in which he joined Paris Saint-Germain, um, told uh, by um, <laughs> very well-placed sources on this that, um, that Mourinho was calling or uh, texting Neymar on a regular basis, trying to uh, essentially say to him, look, if you're going to leave Barcelona, come uh, to Manchester United, I will make you central to the team. Um, I want you here. Um, it's a process that Mourinho has gone through with a, a catalogue of players um, using his personal touch um, to uh, to work behind the scenes to make transfers happen. Um, it fell through because uh, United were not prepared to meet the financial terms Neymar wanted. He wanted to be the best paid player in the world, um, which Paris Saint-Germain granted and I don't think there was any way in which United were going to pay uh, the release clause that Barcelona forced upon them but so there, there is a there is a personal relationship there um, subsequent to that I'm told that um, last season when uh, PSG were um, considering sacking Emery during the season um, because they'd made a decision that he was definitely going to go at the end of the season. Uh, and there was a point at which uh, the dressing room had become so difficult with Neymar-Cavani relationship, Neymar's relation, direct relationship with Emery, that they felt they might have to do something immediately. Um, I'm told that at that point, Neymar was, uh, canvass was, was canvassing and petitioning uh, the president and the sports director that his choice for the next manager would be Mourinho. Um, and at that time, there was a, a serious approach from PSG for Mourinho to, to leave in the summer. And, and obviously that approach um, contributed towards Manchester United extending his contract. So in terms of the relationship between the manager and the player, the groundwork's been done. And, uh, and Neymar obviously has a lot of respect for him as an individual and would be interested in working for him. What would actually happen when they, they work for each other? That, that's, that, of course, is a big question. But I would remember, I would recall what happened when Mourinho moved from Inter to Real Madrid um, and inherited uh, a team with Cristian, Cristiano Ronaldo um, heading towards his peak in the game, but not having quite reached his peak at the game at that stage. And the question then was, how does... Uh, a manager who is so um, focused on uh, strategy that he's devised and implementing that strategy and getting his players to buy into it and do what he asked them to do on the field at the right times, deal with a player like Cristiano Ronaldo. And I was actually in Los Angeles um, for his first uh, summer training session with Madrid and spent time speaking both to Jose and his support staff and, and asked them, um, specifically that question, what, what, how do you use Ronaldo? And he said, well, you build the team around Ronaldo. Um, he's the best player in the world. He's, he's capable of playing multiple positions. Um, he knows exactly what he needs to do. So you don't try and, and fit him into a, a defined structure. You build the structures around his talents uh, and, and improve the quality of the team by improving the way other players are operating to feed him um, and it obviously worked. I mean, the, the, a season later, they, as, as Mourinho 
was happy to remind everyone in Qatar this week they they had the league of records where they they set the uh, took 100 points in Spanish league scored 116 goals set multiple other records against the great Barcelona with um, the great Pep Guardiola who um, immediately after he lost the league resigned his position and left the club which had been that had been the goal that was set for Mourinho when he went to Madrid was knock down, knock Barcelona off their perch, stop them from winning the title. Um, and if you can get rid of uh, Guardiola as well, that would be great. And he achieved those goals. Um, something that's that's mostly forgotten in the um, the post hoc analysis of that reign, but it, it's something which is also relevant when we're discussing whether he might go back to Madrid. Having said all of that, I think. It's a different situation for him now. He's available. Um, I've told you that Paris Saint-Germain have tried to sign him on, on multiple occasions before. But I think in this case, it will need persuasion on his part to convince Paris Saint-Germain or other clubs that he is still the manager he has been and he's still the right solution for them. I think there's going to be a degree of nervousness because of what's happened to him in England and because of the, you know, the, the mountain of, of bad press he's had during his time at Manchester United. And also, um, you have to say that the way Solskjaer has come in and won seven straight games makes things look, um, doesn't look good for him. It's not, you know, it's not a good look to, to be sacked. I have a, a relatively inexperienced um, manager who had failed at another Premier League club come in and immediately run off seven wins. So any... Any major club, um, any of the big clubs, the ones he would be interested in working for are going to be asking questions about that. And I think he will have to use his charm and his, um, his presentational skills um, in a way he's probably not had to do for a, a long time when it comes to actually securing managerial jobs, um, maybe since, uh, since his time at Chelsea. Okay, guys, well, we've got a very good question here from uh, the 4th of January, 1994. I'm assuming that's his birthday. Slightly strange Twitter name, but we'll, we'll move forward anyway. And it says, Ian Duncan, we'd love to have you answer the question posed a week or so ago. Trying it again. He's obviously upset, lads. So be careful. Tread carefully. How did, and I quote, ostracising Sir Alex Ferguson during the last five years work out? Seriously, they care more about money and brand. Ole is great for the brand and football, ergo money. It's a no-brainer, isn't it? Yeah, I, this is um, a subject which um, I think most Manchester United fans are entitled to be asking right now, Johnny, um, given what uh, Solskjaer has said in terms of praise for Sir Alex Ferguson, both as a mentor in the past and as a, a sort of um, management mentor now. Um the, the problem, of course, goes back to when Ferguson, the terms of Ferguson's retirement, uh, the, Glazers, the Glazers wanted him out. They felt that he had created too much power for himself. They wanted more power, especially in the football department and indeed transfers. Um, they also didn't want Ferguson making statements in public, which they didn't like. Although, to be fair, um, his statements and his um, general tone about anything critical towards the club or the way the club was run had certainly... Um, gone down in their ferocity uh, and their frequency as well um, over the last couple of years of his reign. Um, so <clears throat> it, it was a complex scenario for Manchester United. You've got a, a group of owners who 
effect did own the club outright. So there's no board, there's no shareholders meeting who say, shall we keep Fergie or shan't we? They said, we want Fergie out. Fergie negotiated the terms of his retirement in that he gets to choose his successor. David Moyes then comes in on a seven-year contract. The Glazers agree to this on the basis that Ferguson has agreed to retire. They then suffocate Moyes by not supporting the transfer market. He lasts eight months, they sack him. They then wanted Carlo Ancelotti, who by that time had signed for another club, and so they had to bring Van Hal. It was a poor second choice, as it turned out. <clears throat> and then when Van Hal fails, obviously they have to go back to the drawing board um, and find a manager who effectively is in Fergie's image. Um, Mourinho comes in, does well these first two years, and then we all know the story from there. So you can make an argument that ostracising Fergie completely was a, a poor judgment call from the people that run the club but as we've seen repeatedly Ed Woodward will point to um, social media numbers and followers and social media Facebook Twitter Instagram etc as being a triumph and being make Manchester the biggest club in the world the Glazers keep keep <coughs> excuse me the Glazers keep taking huge um, uh, dividends of the club uh, for their own personal payment uh, the share price has increased almost uh, double in the last five years not all down to the Glazers or down to um, uh, commercial interests, etc. Et it's also down to inflation in the market generally for, for, for football clubs. Um, and Ferguson himself, of course, has suffered ill health. So again, there's lots of factors. It's, there's no one simple answer uh, to, to the, our listeners' question. Um, from a point of view of um, continuity, I think it would have been probably more clever to keep Ferguson on side than to to make him uh, an alien in his own club. Um, but that was the choice they made. And the results on the pitch have been very you know, poor, generally speaking, outside of Mourinho's first season. And so you'd have to say it was a poor decision. I think I, think I, agree, I agree with Ian on the complexity of this. Um, I don't think there was any other way around it in the, the relationship between the Glazers and Ferguson was such that um, they just were not going to give him power on the board and were not going to listen to his advice. Um, although that, if you'd been able to take that relationship out of, the, out of the, the process, then obviously that would have been the sensible path to go down because they have no football people in their board. Um, as I've said many times in this podcast, they've got the, the PLC board has not a single person who has been a director of a football club before they became a director at Manchester United. Um, essentially, the Glazer family plus um, financial um, specialists, bankers, um, people who helped them arrange the takeover, who they have promoted into positions of power at the club. Um, so the rational approach would have been to have Ferguson there because he knew the club obviously inside out, and he'd built the structures, um, the wealth of knowledge um, goes without saying, the contacts, etc., etc. So at the very least, have him as a sounding board, um, as a man who, who sits in on, on the, the board meetings and the board decisions and, uh, and suggests that you might be going the wrong way or you might want to follow that path. It was never going to happen because what they wanted was Ferguson out of power, out of control, out of influence within the club. Um, Ferguson himself, you have to factor in here, in that I think he was very conscious 
that he had to step away from the managerial side and he had to step away from the uh, training ground side and he had to let the new man be the new man. He couldn't be seen to, to be sitting in the background um, uh, affecting what he was doing, being, the, being a kind of manager in the shadows. Um, so, and that, that has carried on. Uh, that carried on post David Moyes, that carried on with Van Gaal, it carried on with Mourinho, um, to the point where he would never appear at the training ground. He would never, he wouldn't even travel with the team. Um, you'll remember Mourinho talking in press conferences saying, look, I, I think this is ridiculous. Um, Ferguson is a friend. He's, a, he's um, a key person in this club. He should be more with the team. We want him to travel with the team. We want him to stay in the team hotel. We want him to be there. Um, and of course, Mourinho also identified um, that lack of uh, experience and skill on the board. And he tried to bring Ferguson back into the kind of role I'd be su I've been suggesting would have been uh, the rational one to have. So to so make him a PLC director, make him a person uh, involved in the board, make him a person who is privy to uh, the Glazers' decisions and, and can at least um, suggest they, they follow a different path. Um, but that did not happen. Mourinho tried to make that happen. Um, I don't know whether it was because Ferguson um, was reluctant to, to go down that route or more likely because the Glazers were resistant to it happening, but it, it didn't happen. So, yes, you can say it hasn't worked. Um, yeah, it's obvious it hasn't worked. The, the situation Manchester United are in as a football club, uh, as a football team on the pitch, is not good enough given their resources. And um, it's not a difficult argument to make that had Ferguson been involved in a directorial role, they'd be in a better situation. But it's also, I think, impossible. It wasn't going to happen because of the way um, his relationship was with the Glazers. So um, it's kind of a it's kind of an empty discussion in many ways because um, because it's just it happened the way it did for the reasons there there were between the club, um, the reasons the Glazers are, the reasons they want to uh, manage the club, and and I don't see it. It would be interesting if it were to change now, but I don't see any huge signs that the Glazers are ready to properly welcome Ferguson back into the fold and say. Um, yeah, sorry we made a mistake about that, but we'd, we'd actually quite like you to help us with where we are now. Okay, we're now moving on to a new segment of the podcast uh, for this Wednesday midweek show, and it's going to be the Transfer Window Awards. We call them the Donkeys. So, today's category is Best Unsupported Actor in a Docudrama, and Ian has the nominees. Indeed, uh, three of the world's currently most uh, sparkling players. Uh, the first, the Brazilian genius Neymar Jr. for his performance in almost every game he plays. Second is uh, Ryan Sterling of Manchester City, a man who's known to trip over his own feet in any docudrama. And third and certainly not last, there is the King of Egypt, Mo Salah, a man who sometimes has been described as feather-like in the way that he floats in thin air without any touches. And I would like your hand over to our graduated doctor, Mr. Duncan Castles, the honorary uh, chairman of the Donkeys uh, Board of uh, Winners. Who do you gonna pick, Duncan? Uh, well, it's um, it's some kind of honor 
to be allowed to hand over this um, very ugly award, um, which Johnny oh. will, uh, will will be will be putting in front of you, uh, you poor listeners, um, before too long. I understand. Um, interesting category. I, I think. I think. Um, I think Manchester City will be very upset to hear of Raheem Sterling's nomination, as we um, we've seen this week that they are um, compiling a dossier on the uh, number of penalties that that Raheem should have had this season, and uh, with the, the idea that, to argue that he is being um, targeted by referees as a as an apparent diver when he actually hasn't won anymore. And um, honestly, I think they have a bit of a case because uh, in recent games he he certainly should have had. Um, a few penalties that weren't given to him. Mohamed Salah, I think, has developed a, a superb um, skill in that he has added to his range of uh, finishing and his ability to go past defenders, um, an ability to uh, hit the ground um, at the slightest contact. Um, he's very careful that there's contact there, but when he sees, when he gets contact in the box, um, and it's harder to go past the opponent than it would be to hit the deck. He um, he does it uh, in a in a very dramatic fashion, which um, which seems to catch referees out and get penalties. He's also, I think, the most clever part is if the penalty doesn't come, he gets straight back up and he doesn't appeal. And I think that's uh, that's the real intelligence there. Um, he doesn't. That I think stops him getting the bookings because he makes it look like he just fell over and he wasn't trying to get anything out of the situation. So a close second for the inaugural donkey, but um, really in a category like this, there can only be one winner. Um, you've seen the videos. Uh, you've probably seen uh, the, uh, the YouTube video of Neymar's dog. If you haven't, I would suggest you, you watch that and um, because it's one of the funniest things you will see on, uh, on football Twitter. And it's a very good imitation of the man himself hitting the deck um, certainly without contact, whenever he feels like it, and with great uh, dramatic effect at the climax. Okay, to be clear, Duncan, just to be clear, I'm going to give you a wee drum roll. Who is the winner of the first donkey? Neymar Jr. I look forward to his acceptance speech, Dunk. That's <laughs> <laughs> if, if we can get up the stairs without falling. Okay, well, it's time to slam this transfer window shut, but fear not, we'll be back on Friday to fulfil all your podcasting needs. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and have a transfer window official account at Transfer Podcast. If you want to speak to the guys or myself, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane, Duncan is at Duncan Castles, and Ian is at Garbo SJ. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review, as this, of course, helps us reach as many listeners as possible. Until Friday, when we'll be back with another episode. Thanks for listening.